Genesis chapter 10, we'll finish that one little parenthetical um, break that we skipped over last week, and then we're going to look at the first, actually I think we'll only get as far as the first four verses of chapter 11, although your notes will carry you through the entire account of the Tower of Babel, all the way through chapter, I mean verse 9 of chapter 11, but I think I overdid it and I wasn't able to get everything in this morning, so I'm not going to even try to get everything in tonight. I'll finish up the Tower of Babel next week, verbally. Begin, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy and your patience with with us. We thank you, Father, that though men may come up with all kinds of their own plans and Satan may have his plans, as it says in the scripture, there are many devices in the heart of man. Nevertheless, we know that your counsel what you have determined will be that which will stand, and it will stand forever. Father, thank you as we look at this account of Nimrod and his conspiracy to build not only a city against you, but also a religious system symbolized by the Tower of Babel. We are so glad to know that you are sovereign, that you are never, ever perplexed, that you are never paralyzed by the plans of men, and you, are never, um, you never have to go to a plan B, that you sit in heaven and that you just are in control and we can thank you for that and just rest in those everlasting arms knowing that you are in control no matter what may happen man's kingdoms man himself is from the dust and he will return to the dust of the earth and his kingdoms as we'll see tonight are made of nothing but dried bricks and slime but your kingdom is eternal And for that, we praise you. Now, I pray that you would go before me, help me to speak clearly and quickly, take away the confusion and clutter in my mind, and help me to focus on what you have for us. And I pray the same for these women, Lord. And I just pray that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be glorified through his word. For we pray in his precious name. Amen. Well, with the exception of two parenthetical breaks, which are our topic for tonight's lesson, With the exception of those, Genesis 10 and 11 form one continuous flowing account which contains the genealogical record of the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now one break, as we mentioned just very briefly in our lesson last time, is found in uh, Genesis 10, verses 8 to 12, and it was in, of course, our study of God's table of the nations. That five-verse break deals with the rise of a very notorious tyrant or a dictator named Nimrod and the kingdom which he established. The second break occurs in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, and really without stating Nimrod's name, you never find Nimrod's name in those verses in chapter 11, yet these verses in chapter 11 do essentially clue us in on some of the details concerning Nimrod's character and also the headquarters of his kingdom. We learn of the anti-God conspiracy to build both a city and a tower based in Babel. And that's not only to exalt man, but also to openly and flagrantly disobey and even dethrone God himself. Included in the second parentheses is how God intervened in man's plan by confusing and therefore stopping the united uh, work project of man there at Babel. 
And this he did, as you well know, through the miraculous giving of different languages. And that, the giving of the different languages, actually explains why the various people groups and later on the nations of chapter 10 were divided, remember we read three times, after their what? Tongues or their languages. So really, chronologically, the account of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11 precedes the ethnogenealogical record of the Table of Nations, which we find in chapter 10. The Table of Nations gives us the result of the dispersion of the various families of Japheth, Ham, and Shem, while the Tower of Nimrod, which we find in chapter 11, gives us the cause of that dispersion. So we have the Table of Nations and then the Tower of Nimrod, but really the Tower of Nimrod occurred first. There are four, do you remember way back in our introductory lessons for this whole study on Genesis, we learned that there are four main subjects contained in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Remember, in the book of Genesis, there are two divisions. You have the first 11 chapters, and then you have the whole rest of the book. And there's four, subject, four main subjects in each one of those halves. The four main subjects in the first 11 chapters are the creation, then the fall, then the flood, and then the Tower of Babel. Those are the four main subjects. You could call the Tower of Babel also the creation of the nations or the table of nations. In this lesson, which I have entitled A Tyrant, a Tower, and Tongues, and Frank said that I should have called it a tongue-tied tyrant's tower, and let you all try to say that four times, <laughs> but it's called a tyrant, a tower, and tongues. We're going to come to the fourth and last of those four great subjects of the first 11 chapters, and that is the Tower of Babel, the event of the Lord's miraculous intervention at the time of the building of the Tower of Babel. And this intervention was almost as critical as his intervention with the flood. As far as man's history is concerned, both the flood and the confusion of languages given at Babel are of immense significance because, after all, the, what happened at Babel is what really gave rise to the nations of this earth. And also, I don't guess we'll have time to talk about it tonight, but it is in your notes, and I'll touch on it next week, it also gave rise to the various races of people, you know, the the different biological characteristics of different people groups. For example, the Caucasians and the uh, Negroids and the Mongoloids and the Australoids. And that's what we'll talk about. I won't get into that right now. Okay, anyway, um, also these two events, the Flood and the Tower of Babel, are, are very, very significant spiritually as well. And we will talk about that more as we get into the lesson. Now, our two main outline divisions for this study of these two parenthetical breaks of Genesis 10 and 11 um, are, first of all, we'll look at the tyrant of the tower, and then we will look at the tongues of, at the tower. Tyrant of the tower and tongues at the tower. All right, let's begin by looking, first of all, at the tyrant of the tower. And as you can see under this division, we're going to first, his name is Nimrod. We've already learned that. First of all, we're going to look at Nimrod's character, then we're going to look at his kingdom, and thirdly, we'll look at his conspiracy. So let's begin by reading verses 8 and 9 of chapter 10 
to look at his character, what we learn about the character of this evil man named Nimrod. It says in verse 8 and 9, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. It's interesting that Cush, I remember Cush, Cush was the um, oldest son of Ham. Ham was the youngest son of Noah. All right, so Cush is, I mean, uh, Nimrod is a, a great-grandson of Noah himself. It's interesting, I think, that Nimrod, I mean, that Cush named his youngest son Nimrod because Nimrod in Hebrew is the name Marad, M-A-R-A-D. And it literally means, Nimrod literally in Hebrew means let us rebel. And that, can you imagine naming your son? I mean, we have enough trouble with our children rebelling. Why would you name your son let us rebel? So it's, it's very interesting. We wonder why in the world would Cush name his son, his youngest son, his sixth son. What is six the number of? Man, very interesting that he was the sixth son. Why would he name his son such a name? Well, we don't really know because the Bible doesn't tell us, but we might speculate about it. Uh, could it perhaps be that Cush, as Ham's oldest son, may have resented the fact that his father had been passed over by God through Noah in that prophecy that we learned about over in chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Remember, he blessed Shem and he blessed Japheth, really, through Shem and his fellowship with Shem and also by enlarging Japheth. He said you would be enlarged. But Ham was merely passed over. There was no mention of him. And maybe Cush resented the curse of God, which was given upon his side of the family, the Hamites, um, because after all, it was one of Ham's sons, Canaan, who actually received the curse. After all, Cush might have thought it wasn't fair. That's always a typical response from people, isn't it? It wasn't fair that his people, the Hamites, would be destined to uh, servitude, or at least any part of the Hamites would be destined to servitude to the descendants of Shem and Japheth. So could it be that Cush had trained and instructed his sixth son, Nimrod, from his very birth to rise to a place of leadership and power so that he might lead in an organized rebellion against God's plans? You know, after all, he might have thought, why should the blessing of God go to Shem? Why should Shem have been chosen of God to bring into the world the miracle seed who was supposed to redeem all of them? And why should Japheth be enlarged? and share in Shem's blessing. You know, it just plain wasn't fair. So perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps Nimrod, or Cush, trained Nimrod to be a rebel and to show himself mighty so that he would never serve others. Instead, they would serve him. We know that four times, and again, this is an interesting number that we'll see popping up all over the place in the account of Nimrod in the Tower of Babel, four. And what is four the number of in the scripture? Four is a number of the earth, you know, and world, the world. Like there's four directions of the world. There were four main Gentile world powers. Four is the number for earth. Uh, four times in the scripture we find that the word mighty is used in reference to this man Nimrod. 
In verse 8, we are told that he began to be a mighty one in the earth, and that suggests that he worked, he worked at rising to a position of power and strength. The Hebrew word for mighty is the word gibor, which is translated elsewhere in the Old Testament as chief, you know, like chief, Indian chief. Nimrod struggled to attain a place of prominence among men, a place as chief over men. So he began to be mighty in the earth, in other words, in the world of men. He began to be a chief in the world of men. And then twice in verse 9, we find that Nimrod is said to have been a mighty hunter before whom? Before the Lord. Now this tells us several additional facts about Nimrod and his character. The use of the word hunter indicates that Nimrod um, took up the sword of battle to conquer men and to establish an empire. I mean, obviously it's not talking about the fact that he was a hunter and went out and hunted animals. He was a hunter of men. He attained his position by strength and force. Since five verses in the Table of Nations chapter, you know, chapter 10, five whole verses of Scripture are devoted to this man and to his kingdom. This alone tells us that he truly was a mighty man in his day. He was a giant among men in the post-flood world. Initially, his power probably came from his own people, the Hamites. But as he grew in his power and strength and in his pride and his satanic backing, he probably also blasphemously challenged even those from the line of Shem and Japheth to break away from their cords, their shackles, their bonds of belief and obedience to God Almighty himself. The scriptural record says that Nimrod was not only a mighty hunter, but that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the word before speaks of being against the Lord. You know, when Moses wrote about the degeneracy of the pre-flood people, he had said this. He said, um, the earth also was corrupt before God. So that's what we have here. Nimrod was uh, mighty before the Lord. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, in other words, against the Lord, really. He was a rebel, and he was obviously giving a very ready and willing ear to who do you think? To Satan, exactly, the ever-busy Satan. And therefore, Nimrod dared to express and exhibit brash and flagrant defiance against God himself. And it's amazing. I had one of the ladies this morning come to me after the lesson, and she said, she said I just can't believe that only four generations after the flood, men, was, men were at it again. I mean, it is really pretty amazing. They were defying God all over again. The, they had learned nothing from the flood. And that was in their, you know, Noah was still alive at this time. He could tell them all about it. And here they are daring to defy God. It's just, I mean, that tells you that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, doesn't it? Well, apparently, as Nimrod's fame and his might increased, many of the uh, descendants of Shem and Japheth both also came under his influence and his leadership skills, and they started following him and going along with his plans. The Jerusalem Tergum says this about Nimrod. It says, quote, he was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord, for he was a hunter of the sons of men. And he said to them, 
depart from the judgment of the Lord and adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. End of quote. Guy obviously also had a super ego problem, right? They always do. The wicked world leaders always have an ego problem. Well, the fourth time that the adjective mighty is used with regard to Nimrod is not found here, but it is found over in 1 Chronicles 1.10, and it says essentially the same thing as we read in verse 8. As is true with so much of what we find in the book of Genesis, there is prophetic importance to both Nimrod and to the anti-God one world kingdom which he established with its center at Babel. Actually, before the um, confusion of language, I'm not going to be saying this consistently, but before God sent the tongues, it was really pronounced Babel. Babel. And then after God intervened with the different languages, it became called Babel. And in your notes, I explain about that. I'm not sure I have time to get into it tonight. But I won't be saying Babel because I can't get used to saying that. I'll probably keep saying Babel all the way through. So it's prophet- it has prophetic importance. Nimrod, who was the ruthless tyrant and the world's first world dictator, is a picture in type, prophetic type, of who do you think? The coming Antichrist, exactly. He will be the, the world's last mighty uh, tyrant and dictator, and most commonly he is referred to as the Antichrist. Now, there are a number of ways in which we see how Nimrod was indeed a prophetic type or uh, picture of the Antichrist. First of all, his name alone meant, let us rebel, and that suggests the lawless one, as the Antichrist is called in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Also, we are told that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. In other words, as we've already mentioned, he brazenly advanced his own proud plans and purposes in open rebellion and defiance of Almighty God. And this is exactly what the Antichrist will do according to Daniel 11, verses 36 to 37. You don't have to turn there. It says of him, the Antichrist, and the king, notice he's called a king, and the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods. What does that mean? Wonderful things? Marvelous things? No, it means marvelous as far as being blasphemous and abominable things against the god of gods. And it says, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. Then still speaking of the Antichrist, Daniel said, neither shall he regard the god of his fathers just as Nimrod did not do nor will he regard the desire of women. And that speaks of the coming promised seed of the woman, the anointed one, the Christ. He wouldn't regard God or the promised one because, see, Christ was the desire of all godly women. They all desired to be the one who would give birth to this coming Redeemer. And it says, nor will he regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. So again, um, Nimrod is a picture of the Antichrist. Mighty also describes the character of the Antichrist, just as it was used four times to describe Nimrod. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2.9 about the Antichrist, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan 
with all power and signs and lying wonders. So is that speaking of a mighty person? Of course, we know the Antichrist will be very mighty because he will actually be possessed after three and a half years of the tribulation. He will become possessed by Satan himself. So he will be indeed very, very mighty. Also, Nimrod's rebellion against God took form in a one-world confederacy which he established at where? Babel or Babel. And this is exactly where um, or what the Antichrist one-world system will be referred to, is referred to in the Bible, is Babel or Babylon. And we can be sure that, think about this, that Noah and Shem and Japheth and all of their righteous descendants who were all still alive at the time of Nimrod and his uh, conspiracy against God, that they would not have uh, been in favor of what Nimrod was doing. They would have been opposed to him and to his wicked design against God's purposes, and therefore they would have become Nimrod's natural enemies, right? And perhaps foreshadowing the Antichrist, Nimrod even hunted. After all, it did say he was a hunter of men, I mean a, hunt, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So maybe he even hunted and killed some of the righteous children of God. We know that this is exactly, of course, what the Antichrist will do. He will lead a one-world confederation in open rebellion against God, against the Lord Jesus Christ, and against all the people of God in the days of the Great Tribulation. Like Nimrod, <clears throat> the hunter, the lawless one is called the, blood, the bloody and deceitful man, according to Psalm 5-6. His one-world operation is called Mystery Babylon the Great. And it is described in Revelation 17 and 18. And if you weren't here for our Revelation study and you're interested in learning more about Mystery Babylon the Great, we do have a mini-series, two cassette tapes, called Mystery Babylon the Great, I believe. Lynn, I can't remember the name of it, but you could ask Lynn. It's in the back. Also, we talked a lot about it in, um, in our study of the church's Pergamos and especially Thyatira in Chapter 2 talk a lot about Mystery Babylon. Well, the first kingdom to be mentioned in the Bible is the secular, satanically inspired kingdom of Nimrod. The first time you ever find the word kingdom in the Bible is right here in chapter 10, verse 10. And it's speaking of Nimrod's wicked kingdom. So if Nimrod had a kingdom, he therefore was a king, right? He was the king of Babel or Babel. The Antichrist, remember when I read to you from Daniel chapter 11? He also is called a king. And he will rule over the entire world, both the one-world ecclesiastical system and the one-world economical system. In other words, he will rule over both the religious world system and the commercial world system, both of which are referred to as Babylon. <clears throat> you know, for the first three and a half years, he will be using the false church, the apostate church, along with the, uh, his co-worker, the false prophet. They'll be basically ruling over the false church. They'll have control over it. Um, and then when he destroys it at the in the middle of the tribulation, then he will replace it with another one-world religious system, except he will become the object of worship. 
remember, you know, he'll set up that image of himself and make everybody bow down to it or be persecuted and killed. So the Antichrist, like Nimrod, will be the king of Babylon. All right, we've looked at Nimrod's character. That's all I'm going to say about it. Let's move on now and look at his kingdom, his actual kingdom, and where it was established. And for this, we look at verses 10 to 12. It says, And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh and the city Rehoboth and Calah and Reson between Nineveh and Calah, the same is a great city. From what we learn here, we get the strong impression that Nimrod, the mighty hunter and proud rebel, had an ambitious desire to create his own world empire, which was headquartered at Babel. The mentioning of Babel is, of course, the key to telling us a little bit more background information regarding, as I said earlier, the first nine verses of chapter 11. Because Nimrod's empire was founded at Babel, it becomes very obvious that he was the mastermind behind the project that we'll read about in chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. You know, the project of building both the city of Babel and the tower at Babel in the land of Shinar. See, Nimrod's name is never mentioned in those verses in chapter 11, but from what we learn here in 10, 11 and 12 of chapter 10, we know that he was the one behind the Tower of Babel. All right, now, according to Genesis 10, 10, there were four cities. Remember I said the number four keeps cropping up? Well, here we see four cities that he established in, in the land of Shinar, and then four more cities in Asher, which was became, remember, in our table of nations, we learned that he established the nation of Assyria. So four cities in um, Babylon and four cities in Assyria. I'm not going to get into a lot of detail about these cities like is in your notes, but essentially what they formed, the three cities around Babel and the three cities around Nineveh, they formed kind of like a, a metropolis. You know, it was a main city with little suburbs around it so that, truthfully, they became great cities. You know, it's just called the great city there at the end of verse 12. That would be speaking of Nineveh. After Nimrod established Babel, and those three cities around it, he, and I believe this was after the Tower of Babel incident, and all the other people had their different languages and left. Well, we know that Nimrod must have stayed in Babel. He stayed there because the city continued to be built. It didn't stop him. He must have just gotten together with the people that spoke the same language as he did. And then later on, he went up to Assyria, and he conquered Asher because see Asher, one of the sons of somebody, I can't remember who, but he had already, now he had moved away and he was up there and Nimrod comes and conquers him and then he establishes three cities around Nineveh. He builds Nineveh and then three cities around it and they become like a buffer or a frontline defense against any potential invaders. So just like God had said to Jonah, when he was telling Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah didn't want to obey, remember that? But it, it, it's uh, consistent with what God said about Nineveh because in speaking to Jonah, he said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against her for their wickedness has come up before me. 
You know, it's interesting that, you know, Nineveh became the capital of Assyria. All right, and it really it was a great city. Not good great, bad great, but it was still, and it was large. So anyway, the legends of Assyria actually speak of the founder of their land as a man named Ninus. And that could very well be a form of the name Nimrod. So it's interesting. It's also interesting that the very two lands of Nimrod's rebellious kingdom, Babylon and Assyria, were the very two enemies which God sovereignly chose to chasten his people for their own disobedience against him. Remember, it was Assyria which came down from the north and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, which was called Israel. And then who was it that came and took the southern kingdom? Babylon, under King Nebuchadnezzar, came and took the southern kingdom captive into Babylon for a period of 70 years. So I thought that was very interesting, that God used the very two nations that Nimrod originally founded to chasten his own people. Well, even though the name of Nimrod never appears in the account of the Tower of Babel, Having learned of his character and his kingdom in the first parenthetical break in the genealogical account of the peoples and nations of ten, uh, Genesis 10 and 11, it becomes very apparent that he is the tyrant of the tower, about which we read in the second parenthetical break in chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. So the two breaks really go together. You see, you could pull these two breaks right out of these two chapters and put them together because they go together. And if you took them out, you'd have... Just a consistent table of nations. Because if you look at verse 10 of chapter 11, it says, these are the generations of Shem. And then it goes on with Shem's descendants all the way to the end of the chapter where we get to uh, Terah, Abraham's father. So, you know, these are definitely parenthetical breaks that you could put together. Well, so now we come to... Um, his conspiracy. We've looked at his character, his kingdom, now we look at his conspiracy, and for this, go over to chapter 11, and we'll look at the first four verses as we discuss, first of all, the move, there was a move of the people, then we look at the materials that they used in building their city and their tower, and third, we'll look at the motive behind their building of the tower and the city. So we'll begin with the move. And for this, look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11. It says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Okay, the first thing that we are told in this account regarding the building of the tower, or building of Babel and the tower, is that before this event, before the building of, the, of um, Babylon, the whole earth had a common language and a common speech. Now, it's very understandable that all of the descendants of Noah would speak the same language, right? I mean, we're only four generations removed from Noah. He's still living, so, of course, everybody would speak the same language. But why is there a distinction made here between one language and one speech? Well, in Hebrew, the words which are used for one speech refer to the fact that the people's words for things, in other words, their vocabulary, meant exactly the same thing to everyone. 
And that isn't always the case, even among people who speak the same language. Right? Think about it. I know when I first moved down here from Chicago and married my husband, I'll never forget the day we were newlyweds, and he, um, it was winter, and he was looking for his toboggan because he was going to put it on his head. And I was just laughing, 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 and I said, why would you want to put a sled on your head? <laughs> and we had this long argument about a toboggan and what it really is. Toboggan to me is a sled that you go sliding around and playing in the snow. I had never heard of one of those caps you put on your head being called a toboggan. To me, it was a cap, you know, or whatever we called it. But we never called it a toboggan. Uh, another word that I remember is um, sorry. He said so-and-so was sorry. She was sorry. You know, I thought, all these repentant people, you know, they're all so sorry. But he didn't mean that at all. He meant they were no good. <laughs> so just because you speak the same language doesn't mean that you're meaning the same thing in the words that you use. We can go out in the world and a lot of people use the name Christ or even God, but they're not speaking of the same Christ and the same God that we know, that we're talking about. But before the Tower of Babel, the thoughts and ideas of the people of the whole earth were expressed using the very same words or vocabulary. The language, now think about this, the language of the post-flood people was obviously the same language of the pre-flood people all the way back to Adam and Eve. Now, had you ever thought about what was that language? What was the language that Adam used in speaking to his wife and to Cain and Abel? Well, it is possible that the original language was a Semitic language and even very possibly Hebrew itself. After all, if you think about it, the proper names of people and places before Babel only have significant meanings when they are translated from Hebrew. You know, all these names that we've been talking about and what they mean in the Hebrew, they would have no significance if they weren't originally in Hebrew. Furthermore, it would, have seemed, it would seem likely that Shem and his righteous descendants would not have cooperated with Nimrod in the anti-God building project at Babel. And therefore, their language would not have been altered by the confusion of tongues given by God to halt the project of that sinful people. You know? So that makes sense, too, that Shem's descendants would keep on speaking their original language, which I believe, if I had to take a guess at what the original language of Adam and Eve was, I would say that it was Hebrew. Well, at any rate, the common language and speech of the people of the pre-Babel earth enabled, if you think about this, they're all speaking the same language, they all understand each other perfectly. I mean, nobody's saying, uh, put it up, when they mean put it away, <laughs> close the door too, when they mean shut the door. <laughs> Nobody say, hey, when they mean hi. No, actually, I'm, I've become a southerner because I use all of those expressions now. And he's sorry and she's sorry. <laughs> and where's my toboggan? But anyway, if everybody could speak the same language and think the same way with their words, then they would be able to advance very rapidly because they could work together real well. They could play together. They could communicate, and communication is very important. So they would advance very rapidly as a society and a civilization. Well, in verse 2, we are told that it came to pass 
that the people moved and eventually they settled in a plain in the land of Shinar. Did I have a pen up here? Yeah, here's a pencil. So they, they settled in this area right here in the lower Tigris and Euphrates River, which is the land of Shinar, which is, according to the Bible itself, the same area of Babylonia. And who knows what country is right here in this area today? Iraq. Iraq. No, Israel's over here. This would be the area of Iraq. And that makes sense, too, doesn't it? With Nimrod, think of Saddam Hussein, probably was a direct descendant of Nimrod. <laughs> there seems to be no problem with, if we just read so far through verse 2 of chapter 11, we don't see any problem in disobedience with the people, or at least it doesn't seem like we read of any disobedience. It would appear, really, if we didn't know any better from having already read about wicked Nimrod, the founder of Babel, or Babylon, it would appear that the people were merely obeying God's commandment, back in chapter 9, verse 1, to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. In other words, to scatter and fill the earth. However, as we continue to read, we find that the purpose of these people who were obviously under the influence of Nimrod, who was obviously under the influence of Satan, was not to obey God's command at all, but to really do the exact opposite. Their goal in building both the city and the Tower of Babel was to consolidate themselves into a strongly centralized society, which under the brilliant and powerful leadership of Nimrod would be able to be self-sufficient. They would not need God nor would they need his command about scattering across the earth, nor would they need his prophecies, which seem so unfair, in that they favored Shem. Uh, and perhaps Nimrod, very clever, like Satan with Eve, perhaps he was able to actually convince the people that God was being very selfish in wanting them to scatter across the face of the earth because God would know that in that way they would be weaker and they would be easier for him to control. So maybe he used Satan's old trick, you know, to get people to think like he did with Eve, you know, he's just trying to withhold knowledge from you because he doesn't want you to become like him. So maybe they swallowed the same old lie that Eve did. Well, at some point in time, after having moved to Shinar, Nimrod called a committee meeting, perhaps with all the receptive family leaders. And using his talent, which we can assume he had because he is a type of the Antichrist, using his talent for persuasive speaking and his powerful, charismatic personality, he got the people highly motivated about a great building project. He gave them what all leaders should do. He gave them a vision about constructing not only a great city, but a religious center in the form of a tremendous tower. You see, Nimrod was going to defy God's prophecy about his family becoming servants, and he was going to rebel against God's commandment to scatter across the earth. Furthermore, he wanted the people, he was selfish, remember, and egotistical, and all this is really for himself, he wanted the people gathered together in his cities so that they would be under his control. In Genesis 10.3, <clears throat> we haven't read that yet, but we are first told about 
the building materials for this United project. That's the first thing they talked about was the building materials. Um, and by the excitement of the people, which we're going to see evidenced in the next two verses, we find that Nimrod really, as far as the world is concerned, he was a great leader. He was a kind of comparable to Nehemiah. You know, Nehemiah was a godly leader. Nimrod was a great leader. It's just the only problem was that he was wicked. Verse 3, the materials. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. Well, remember I said that Nimrod was referred to as being mighty how many times? Four. How many cities did he build in Babylon? How many cities did he build in Assyria? Four. All right, you know what we find now? We find, we haven't seen it yet, but as we read through this account of the Tower of Babel, we're going to find that the little phrase, let us, appears four times. The first three occasions come from the people who are united in their excitement over this building project, and the last time, who does it come from? The lips of God himself. Look at verse 7. As God talking to himself again, God is always talking to himself, <laughs> but that's because he's the triune God, triune Godhead, and he's taking counsel with himself, and he says, go to let us go down. That, again, is another proof that God is, there is a trinity, a divine trinity. Remember when he said, let us make man in our own image. He's not consulting with the angels here. He's talking within his own Godhead. So the fourth time we read let us, it comes from the lips of God. The first time, it's the people, and they say, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly, thoroughly. The first united decision then with regard to this Babel building project was to develop a brick-making industry. Wood was not durable enough to construct the kind of permanent city. See, what they're going to do this. They wanted it to be something permanent, and wood would just not be um, durable enough. And large stones were just not available in that area. You know, the Tigris-Euphrates River region does not have large stones for building. It just isn't there. However, the clay soil of that area was great for making bricks, especially if those bricks were treated in uh, a kiln, you know, properly treated in a kiln. Now, it's interesting that archaeologists have discovered that when bricks were used in Egypt, and in Assyria, they were merely dried out in the sun. However, when they have dug around in Babylon, they have found, indeed, that the bricks that were used there were a kiln-dried brick, just exactly as the scripture says. They also have found out that they used, what they used to cement those bricks together is, was slime actual slime from the abundant asphalt pits which are found in the Tigris and Euphrates River. And what did we learn? That they said they were going to use brick and burn it thoroughly, you know, in the kiln, and then they were going to use slime for mortar. That was the word I was looking for. Dr. John Phillips had a real interesting point here in his book on Genesis. He pointed out how when God builds his kingdom, he uses stone, stones. You know, Christ is who? The chief cornerstone. And the apostles are the foundation stones. And then the rest of the saints are lively stones or living stones. And God's city 
is the New Jerusalem. And it is, as we re read in Revelation 21, it is made of every kind of precious stone practically imaginable. And therefore, God's city, the New Jerusalem, stands in stark contrast to man's city, which is represented by Babylon, Babel. Babel was made of what? Brick, which is merely hardened clay. And hardened clay is a very appropriate symbol for unregenerate man. Nothing really permanent can ever come from hardened clay and slime. Go ahead and build something to see how long it lasts. You know, it's not going to pass through thousands of years, I can guarantee you. <clears throat> All of man's humanistic efforts are bound to fall because they are frail and they are faulty. The slime, that's a descriptive word, isn't it? The slime that holds them together is nothing more than really the uh, doings of the evil one who desires to keep man in the miry clay of his slimy sin and hold him there until he dies and he goes to an eternal hell in the slimy, burning lake of fire. You know, in Daniel chapter 2, we've talked several times about Daniel tonight, but in chapter 2, we learn that there are four mighty Gentile empires of this world, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And regardless of what they are made of, we find in chapter 2 that they all will crumble to dust and, the, and be blown away by the wind at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ's second coming. He is depicted in Daniel chapter 2 as what? A stone cut out without hands, and he will come out of heaven, and where will he crush this statue, which represents all of man's uh, worldly kingdoms? On its feet, I actually have a picture, I almost forgot. On its feet, and the whole thing will crumble to dust, the wind will come along, and there will be nothing left. But that great stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, will become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. The Lord will then establish his millennial kingdom on the whole earth. And from the millennial kingdom, we will go to the eternal state. So, the first united let us of the people of Babel was with regard to their building material. The second let us, which is found in the first half of verse 4, tells us of their united decision to build both a city and a tower. Let us do this. And then their third let us reveals their motive, their very humanistic, anti-God motive behind this whole project. So let's look now at the motive in verse 4. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Having determined to create a brick-building industry, the leadership committee of Nimrod's council made a second decision which they presented to the people who were, once again, excited and united about this. And that decision was to build themselves not only a city, but a tower whose top may reach where? Unto heaven. The people, because they were of one language and one speech, already had a cultural unity, if you think about it. They not only all came from the same recent father, he being Noah, 
but they were all able to understand one another, express themselves with the same vocabulary. They all had the same back, you know, cultural backgrounds. They all had the same customs. So they were a united nations, um, so to speak, culturally. Now, by building themselves a city, they would be reaching for political unity as well. And by building themselves a tower to reach unto heaven, they were seeking a religious unity. Of course, behind this first humanistic, united federation of all the nations, well, there weren't any nations, but of all the people, was the great rebel himself, the one against God, Satan, just as he will be the one behind the Antichrist in the last humanistic united federation, the one world confederation against God. Well, the tower, which the people planned to build in Babel, was to serve as the main focus of the city. You know, it was to be a symbol of their unity and their strength. It was to serve as the center of their social, their political, and their religious lives. The structure itself was what archaeologists call a, who knows, starts with a Z, ziggurat. Very good, ziggurat. It was a ziggurat. That's why I wrote on here wrong. Another picture I had had up here earlier was also wrong. Don't get the idea that this is the kind of structure they were building. It didn't look anything like that. It looked more like this. Actually, that used to say right before it got absorbed in there. A ziggurat. Ziggurats were somewhat like a pyramid, except that they had successive levels. Um, I mean, the, the successive levels were recessed so that it was possible for the people to walk up, you know, to the top on steps. And at the top, unlike a pyramid, which comes to a point and has nothing at the top, at the top of a ziggurat, it was flat and there was a shrine up there. And originally, those shrines were dedicated to the zodiac. And later, they became <clears throat> dedicated to gods, various gods and goddesses. Of course, now, think about this. The people were not so stupid and naive as to think. I mean, they were a lot more brilliant than we are. We're not evolving, we're de devolving. They weren't so stupid to think that they could literally build a tower which would reach into heaven itself. If that had been their um, desire, they would have built their ziggurat on Ararat. I thought that would be, make a good poem. <laughs> or a song, the ziggurat on Ararat. I mean, has a real... Thank you. But they would not certainly have picked the lowest place they could find to build their ziggurat. And the um, Tigris-Euphrates valley or plain there is almost at sea level. So they weren't really literally trying to get to heaven. The tower was a symbol to the people of Babel. It was their way of demonstrating that they could build their own stairway to heaven. They could build their own religion, in other words. They could build their own way their own path to heaven, and they could do it all on their own. This is what all the other religions besides Christianity are based on, man trying to work his own way to heaven, making up his own way to get there and then doing it. But, of course, we know that that would only cause man to boast. You know, If he got to heaven his own way and by his own self-efforts, he would boast, wouldn't he? Well, here's how I got here. How'd you get here? And everybody be bragging in heaven about all their great accomplishments that earned them heaven. But God says it's 
by his grace, faith and grace alone. So they undertook a, to build a magnificent tower which represented their own religion of self-effort and works. Furthermore, <clears throat> the idea behind the high tower was occultic because they planned to build a tower topped by heaven is really the way we should look at it, topped by heaven. In other words, by the zodiac signs. It is known that the ziggurats were associated with both astrology and stargazing. Occultism, therefore, was behind their religious unity and not the true God. Nimrod was really brilliant <clears throat> in his evil. You know, Satan is brilliant, isn't he? He's very brilliant. He can outsmart us any day. Any day. <clears throat> so Nimrod was very brilliant in his evil. He knew that even fear and admiration of him as their great leader would not keep the people united for very long. <clears throat> Eventually they'd get frustrated with him. So he knew that they needed a religious motivation as well. For, for He knew that man is a religious being. So if they were going to be persuaded to forsake the true God and not fear being disobedient to him, then he was going to have to convince them that there were other ways to reach heaven, that they didn't need God. Well, Nimrod, along with his supposed wife, Semiramis, was event, he was eventually, they were both eventually successful. That's why I say he stayed there. He did not scatter like the others, except to go to Assyria and continue his kingdom up there too. But <clears throat> eventually, he was successful in corrupting the worship of the creator into the worship of the creature. Through the corruption of the God-given constellations of the sky, after all, who put the stars in the heaven? <clears throat> God himself. And what does Satan do? He's not original. He just always takes what God has used and he um, counterfeits or he corrupts it. He's, he's the great corrupter. So he corrupted those God-given constellations that men look at <clears throat> when they look up at the stars so, so that they all became corrupted. I mean, I really do believe, you know, somebody might disagree with me, but I believe that the gospel is written in the stars and that Satan took that, and now people are afraid to even talk about that because he made it so wicked that we're afraid of talking about the stars. But I believe originally they did give the gospel message. And the constellation, the virgin, which was once used to remind men of the promised seed of the woman, was corrupted by Satan to be a sign of the false queen of heaven. And, of course, this is this is just developed into all kinds of, things all throughout the generations and all over the world and you can see some of the results of the queen of heaven the, the mother and child cult which has even infiltrated Christianity with the worship of mother uh, mother Mary you know Mary they call her the Catholic Church even refers to her, to her as the queen of heaven well anyway soon the stars were invested with personalities of spirit beings demons and the people were worshiping them. They didn't know it. They thought they were worshiping the stars, but behind those stars, because Satan and his demonic forces are the principalities and powers of the air, they were really worshiping the demons. <clears throat> and some of the people might have actually really been deceptive. You know, they might have deceptively thought that they were really worshiping God by worshiping his creation. That's known as pantheism, by the way. 
And a lot of people will think that they're worshiping God because they're worshiping a tree. But they're not. They're, instead of worshiping the creator, they're worshiping the creation. And that is, that's evil. So this system soon became so complex that it needed an entire trained group of men and women to dedicate their whole lives to studying and interpreting the signs of the stars so that they might guide people in their sacrifices and in the directions of their lives. And of course, as we know, that this, this was all uh, Satan's doings. And he was very happy about this because this was a success for which he was striving as people were worshiping the creation and the, the stars and his evil spirits were really in all of that, they were then being able to control the minds of the people and even, in some cases, possess their bodies, take possession of them. And if God had not intervened, what would we have all over again? Another situation like before the flood, where Satan would eventually even destroy the righteous messianic line of Shem. So God had to intervene. Well, and, and this is one reason, I'll just throw this in, but you know you should not be into, his, um, uh, what do they call that? Astrology. Yeah, astrology and the people that look in the uh, horoscopes. Yes, please. Uh, do not. A Christian has no business engaging in that. That is all satanic and occultic, so don't. Don't get into looking into the newspaper to find out what your horoscope is. Please. Or don't, don't even talk to me about what sign you were born under. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, from Babel, it has been demonstrated, this has been proven, that the entire complex of all false religions has arisen. As man willfully left his knowledge of the true creator to, wor to worship instead the creation, this has led, as I said, to pantheism. It's also led to polytheism with man worshiping many, many gods and also, of course, to idolatry. Dr. Donald Barnhouse has written, he said, quote, The tower was a ziggurat on top of which was a zodiac by which the priests hoped to get knowledge from the stars. It was an open, defiant turning to Satan and the beginning of devil worship. This is why the Bible everywhere pronounces a curse on those who consult the sun, the moon, and the stars of heaven. So be aware of that. Okay? Well, the evidence is abundant that, as I said, all forms of paganism have found their origin in the ancient Babylonian religion. Nimrod, <clears throat> do you remember what I told you his name was in Hebrew? Does anybody remember? Yeah, that's what it means in English, but what was it in Hebrew? Marad, or however you pronounce that. He was later deified as a god himself and worshipped, and his name as a god was Marduk. You've heard of that in the Bible? Marduk or Merodach. And his wife, Semiramis, was the founder, as I said, of the Queen of Heaven cult. And the tragic thing is that, as I said, not only did all, have all the pagan, all the false religions and cults come originally from Babel or Babylon, but it's also infiltrated a large portion of Christendom. And don't think it hasn't even gotten into the Protestant churches because it has. And this is why Babylon is referred to as the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now, of course, the main thrust behind the whole wicked Babylonian system, the one who really stood behind Nimrod and his equally wicked wife, is none other 
than Satan himself. He is the one who deceiveth the whole world into worshiping anything or anyone other than the true God. And he will be happy if you are reading anything or listening to anyone other than this book here. Because this is the only book that tells about the true God, the only quote-unquote holy book that tells about the true God, and about the one whom he sent to do what to Satan's head? Crush it and defeat faith. So, of course, Satan doesn't want us to know about him. Well, the third united let us of the people who settled with Nimrod in the land of Shinar or Babylonia reveals their motive in all that they had determined to do uh, in there their in Babel. In a deliberate and brazen defiance of God's command to multiply so as to replenish the earth, they boldly proclaimed to one another, let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So we discover here that their infamous building project of both Babel and the tower was nothing short of an arrogant declaration of war against God. I mean, they're showing here pride. They're just, they have as much pride as Nimrod, their leader, don't they? Because what do they want to do? They're not concerned about God's name and God's purposes and plans. They're only interested in making a name for themselves. And they're only interested in their own plans. Their satanically inspired idea was to glorify man, humanity. And what do we call this today? Secular humanism, exactly. Not only was Nimrod's ambition to gain fame and glory for himself, but we find this is the very same selfish purpose of the people themselves, the people who joined in his rebellion. Included in the sinful motive of the people was an equal desire for independence from God. They wanted to make their way to fame and glory without any assistance whatsoever from God. They would do it, as Frank Sinatra sang, their way. He said, I'll do it my way. And they would do it alone, and thereby they would prove how great they were. So it was the same old lie of, of the devil as he had done in Eden, where he said, ye shall be like God. And again, just as with Eve, the people swallowed that lie. However, it, as it says in Proverbs 19.21, there are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Now, that proverb is a very fancy way of simply saying that God always, always has the last word. Always. Man can call together his councils, he can call together his committees, all he wants. But when God calls his council, what he decrees will prevail in spite of what man or Satan tries to do to thwart those plans. And this is the cycle we see repeated throughout the book of Genesis, don't we? I mean, over and over again, man sins, he's disobedient, God has to come down in judgment, and, judge it. and then there's a new beginning. And then we start the whole thing all over again. As we said, only four generations from the flood. This is incredible that man is doing this again, but he is. From Nimrod to Nebuchadnezzar, from Semiramis to Stalin, from uh, Babel to Belshazzar, from Herod to Hitler, God has demonstrated time and time and time again that it simply does not pay for man to rebel against him. 
Those who choose to go their own way and willfully ignore or disobey God's way will always be brought to frustration and confusion. That's what we'll see next week with what he did here. And the reason for this is because whether you like it or not, we do not live in man's universe. We live in God's universe. Man is not sovereign. Man is a finite being. God is sovereign. Man is made from the dust of the earth, and his kingdoms are made of what? Clay and slime. That's pretty lowly. God's kingdom, on the other hand, is made of stone, and it's eternal because it's made really of him. So as I said in my opening prayer, God is never, ever perplexed by what man does. Neither is he ever paralyzed by man's plans. In fact, man's first united cry from Babel, which was, let us go up, you know, we'll build a tower, we'll go up to heaven, was met with a laugh from heaven as the divine trinity responded, no, we will go down. Let's look at Psalm 2 as we close. Psalm 2, because this really could be such a perfect description of this Tower of Babel event. Psalm 2, just the first four verses. The psalmist says, Psalm 2, verse 1, Why do the heathen rage? Or why does, actually that means, you know, why do they tumultuously assemble together and rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. What was the vain thing? We will build this permanent city and tower out of hardened clay and slime. That's a vain thing, isn't it? (laughs) And then it says, verse 2, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together, and that's exactly what they did under Nimrod, and they all took counsel together, the leaders of the various families, and what they counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Who's that? Christ. Christ means the anointed one. Also could mean against his, the right, his righteous people. And what do they say? Oh, look at this. Let us. There we have it again. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. You know, let's break the ties with God. After all, he isn't very fair, is he? He, he prefers Shem over us. And, uh, and, and we just don't like his commandments. To sca- he just is being selfish to scatter us so that we'll be weak. So we're going to break our bands and we're going to cast away our cords. We're not going to be tied up with God anymore. But what is his reaction? Look at verse 4. He that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. That really is exactly what we see going on in Babel. I think it's so funny. You know, they're trying to work them their way up to heaven and yet from where he looks, he looks down on their puny little effort, and he says, well, no matter how high they get, I still have to go all the way down there. Well, let's go ahead now and look at the second part of our outline, the tongues of the tower. And for this, we'll look at Genesis 11, verses 5 to 9. It says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. 
and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. In our consideration of verses 5 to 9, we're going to look first at God's own united counsel, as he, within his Trinitarian Godhead, declared what they would do. He, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And, and that will be in verses 5 to 7. And then we will discuss God's divine intervention in which he caused mass confusion among the citizens of Babel by confounding them with different tongues. And that will be in verses 8 to 9. First of all, we consider then a divine counsel in verses 5 to 7. The fourth time that we read the words, let us, appears in this section. Remember, we said that four times we find that phrase. The first three times were spoken by the people. And now this fourth time, the words come from the lips of God himself. He spoke within his own Godhead, just as he had done in Genesis 1.26 and again in Genesis 3.22. God was really mocking the foolish plans of rebellious man. You know, they were trying to build up to him and yet he still has to come down to see what's going on with them. Of course, now God did not actually have to come down from heaven in order to investigate the city and the tower which the children of men builded. By the way, the word men there is actually Adam, the children of Adam builded. He didn't have to come down. He knew exactly what was going on, of course. But there does exist the possibility that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, did literally perhaps come down from heaven in a pre-incarnate appearance, which he did, we know, on a number of occasions in the Old Testament. But whether God assessed the situation from heaven or from earth itself, his conclusion, which is found in verse 6, was that the people, being united in their motive and goal by their one language, that they would accomplish their goal of constructing an independent man-centered civilization in direct rebellion of his command. They'd be successful, and their success would only encourage them into greater and greater rebellion against him until even the messianic line was endangered, as occurred before the flood. Dr. Henry Morris says this, he says, quote, Furthermore, with Nimrod's presumed knowledge of the satanic mysteries and his access to demonic powers, literally nothing which he might decide to do in the future would be beyond his reach. The conditions of the antediluvian world might be repeated, and this God would not allow, even though he had promised Noah he would never again send a worldwide flood. End of quote. Because God saw and knew the pride of man's wicked imagination and the evil of his goal, because he saw not only Nimrod's evil plans, but those of the black-hearted monster behind him, he pronounced his verdict. He would go down and confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. It says in verse 7. Well, that was a divine counsel. Let's look now at a divine confounding. And for this, 
Uh, we look at verses 8 and 9, which I've already read to you, but I'll repeat them. It says, So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. God put a stop to man's godless purpose by confounding him with abundant languages. We can almost picture the surprised confusion that would have quickly spread throughout the city and the work project. Because the family groups were divided after their tongues, as it told us in Genesis 10, we can presume that individual members of families were given the same languages so that they could still understand each other as they spoke. However, think of some of the other situations which would have immediately begun to occur. Men working side by side would suddenly have no idea whatsoever what their neighbors were saying. Foremen would be unable to communicate what they wanted their work crews to do. And even Nimrod would not be able to tell his council members or even his palace servants what to do because no one would understand his words. And then in no time at all, uh, the consequence would be that chaos would rule over the city with all kinds of different languages being screamed out by people frantic to be understood, Babel quickly turned into a city of vast confusion. The word Babel sounds almost identical to the Hebrew word Balel, which does it does mean confusion. So what was once called Babel, with a long A sound, meaning gate of the gods, was given a new name by God, Babel, with a short A, which means confusion, or is very similar to the Hebrew word for confusion. Although God himself is not the author of confusion, he can and he does sometimes use confusion to thwart the plans of evil men who attempt to unite against him and against his will. The English word Babel, B-A-B-B-L-E, comes from what occurred at Babel. Actually, the word Babel, because it sounds like what it is, and that's called an onomatopoeia. It's a word which is essentially understood in almost all languages. So it's interesting that Babylon, the mother of all false religions and cults, has come to mean, to all people, the city of babbling and confusion. And what a true statement that is about paganistic and cultish religions. In Scripture... Of course, Babylon symbolizes worldly pride, spiritual rebellion against God, and moral corruption. Babylon, biblically, represents the whole world system which stands opposed to God and to Jesus Christ and to God's people. The people of Babel had desired to build a tower to reach up to heaven. But you know, the only thing that managed to reach heaven was their sin. Dr. Warren Wearsby comments, he says, Every generation builds its own towers. Whether these are actual skyscrapers, such as the Sears Tower and Tribune Tower in Chicago, or the Eiffel Tower in Paris, or the Trump Tower in New York City, or mega corporations that circle the globe, the idea is the same. We will make a name for ourselves. God's people cannot escape being in the world because it's in the world that we have our ministry. But we must avoid being of the world. We're not here to build the arrogant towers of men, 
We're here to build the church of Jesus Christ. What humanity can't, can't achieve by means of its proud towers, Jesus Christ has achieved by dying on a humiliating cross. All who trust Jesus Christ are one in him and will share heaven together regardless of race, nation, language, or tribe.